Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's June 10th, 2022. As always, I'm talking to you from San Francisco on the west coast of the United States. Today, we're talking U.S. history, trying to get America to come to terms with its origins. It's rather flawed, perhaps to be euphemistic about its origins. We've already done lots of shows about the origins of America. We did a, a, a really interesting show last year with the NY New York University sociologist David Stasavage on democracy in America, in which uh, in his new book, The Decline and Rise of Democracy, Stasavage argues that um, indigenous Americans, the, the peoples who populated North America before the Europeans showed up and murdered most of them, um, they already had democracy. So the idea that uh, Europeans brought the democracy to America is slightly problematic. We've done lots of other shows about the troubled history of injustice to indigenous people, one with Margaret Jacobs. Uh, she has an interesting new book out, After 100 uh, Winters, uh, In Search of Reconciliation on America's Stolen Lands. Also done them more broadly in North America with the Canadian writer Tanya Talaga. Um, a lot of this, I think, is bound up, and, and, and Tanya has an interesting book out, All Our Relations. A lot of this is bound up in a in a profound rethinking of what happened before the Europeans showed up in the Americas, a profound rethinking of the nature of pre-colonial and indeed non-European society. Um, this is very much in vogue. Uh, David Graeber's new book, um, unfortunately, uh, Graeber died before the book came out, The Dawn of Everything, A New History of Humanity is a bestseller, and I think it really resonates. And today we're continuing on this theme with a really interesting and important book called Covered with Night, a story of murder and indigenous justice in early America. It won the Pulitzer Prize. It's written by a, a historian from New York University, Nicole Eustace, a colleague, I think, in some senses of David Stasavage. And I'm thrilled that Nicole is joining us from New York. Nicole, um, am I right that America is or at least many American historians like yourself are forcing Americans to come to terms with the origins of the country, which has always been romanticized as wise men bringing civilization to North America. And now we're beginning to realize that that really wasn't the case. Um, absolutely. I think my work can be considered as part of that general movement I really do try to have a kind of holistic approach to history, to look at it in the round and to see all historical actors as part of the same sort of flawed human family. Uh, so I don't, I don't want to take a position that um, Europeans had nothing of value to offer the world. At the same time, I think we also really need to take account of the destructiveness of a lot of European imperialism in North America, indeed around the globe. Um, so in Covered with Night, it's a story of murder and indigenous justice. And it really, it tries to look at um, different intellectual traditions around questions of violence, community destruction, community rebuilding, community repair. 
Um, and yes, it does try to kind of flip the script um, away from the European idea that they were the only people who had, you know, any tr traditions of civility to impart to the rest of the globe. So let's wind the clock back, Nicole, back to 1722 when your story begins, uh, according to the Smithsonian, at least, uh, a 1722 murder spurred Native American pleas for justice in early America. Before we get to the, the case in your book, what's your reading um, of, and, and this comes back, I guess, to Stasevage, to the, the issue of justice, laws, constitutionality, even democracy in Native uh, America and Indigenous Americans, uh, particularly the, uh, the Iroquois people who uh, you write about in your book. Can we make generalizations? Um, generalizations in what sense? About the Iroquois contribution to democracy? No, in, in, in the context of ideas about justice and punishment, the things that perhaps Europeans tended to gloss over and assume these people were savages and they simply went around murdering each other. A kind of uh, imagining, I guess, in the Hobbesian narrative that it was a war of all against all until the Europeans showed up and brought imported justice into North America. Okay, absolutely. So two important points here. One, yes, there is an indigenous approach to justice, which is very, very different in its essence from the European approach to justice. And we can see that in the Northeastern region that I researched amongst a, a wide uh, array of native groups, definitely the five, now six nations of the Haudenosaunee, um, but also many different Algonquin groups also sub subscribing to similar principles. And then you have work um, by historians like Kelly Little Hernandez in California, where you're based, um, showing that indigenous groups there also did not believe in incarceration, did not believe in capital punishment, had a an approach to justice that was not about retribution um, or individual um, kind of demonization. So that's one key thing. The other thing I agree I, with- I gotta jump in here. Um, well, I have two I points. Mean, I have two points. The okay, other I just wanna jump in about San Francisco and- um, the idea is that things haven't changed much uh, in, 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 in that context in terms of retribution. But anyway, go on. The idea of savagery has nothing to do with the indigenous peoples of North America. Okay, the idea of savagery is a Roman concept. It was originally applied to, you know, European tribes that they didn't like. And um, it, it has to do with dwelling in the woods. Uh, you know, the actual root meaning of the word savage is someone who lives in the woods. So Europeans came with this whole dichotomy of the civilized and the savage kind of already pre-cooked. They had a whole kit that they imported from the Romans. And of course, the English liked nothing better than to imagine themselves as latter-day inheritors of the Roman Empire and as like the civilized leaders of the globe. But I can't emphasize enough this had nothing to do with the actual attributes or actions of, of First Nations peoples in the Americas and everything to do with European concepts that they just kind of slapped on top of the people that they encountered. Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a very important reading critique that you offer. Can we make generalizations about the different peoples who inhabited North America before the Europeans showed up? These peoples um, who, uh, who, who, who we generalize call the, uh, uh, the five nations, were they very different? Or, or, or were there principles when it, comes to, when it came to law and retribution that applied to most of them? 
Um, well, I think that, you know, whenever we're engaging in analysis and kind of grouping people, it, it, it's always an intellectual exercise and it works only as far as it helps us to explain things and not to the degree that it flattens, uh, you know, complexity and nuance. So, you know, every, every individual group had their own traits, characteristics, traditions, languages, um, stories. So on the one hand, you don't want to just say, well, they were, they in some giant category were all like this. Um, on the other hand, we do know that what united um, the five and now six nations of the Haudenosaunee was a mutually agreed upon ritual process for dealing with crises of violence, of death, of loss, of grief. My book is called Covered with Night, and that comes from a traditional Haudenosaunee um, teaching around the experience of grief and then uh, the kind of compassionate response to grief. And the full quote is, if I found anyone in grief, even as I am, they would be covered with night and wrapped in darkness. Um, and I'm not reading you it, I'm just reciting it from memory, so I don't quite have it, but it basically says, I would take these strings and I would wrap them around them as an act of condolence, and my strings would become words that would console them. So the Haudenosaunee people, the five and now the six nations, came together through this emotional and spiritual and material exchange. And that's really kind of critical to understanding um, the Haudenosaunee approach to community building and to the maintenance of community membership. So it's got a big scale impact and a small scale impact. On the big scale, this is how you unite um, very different nations together as one people. Um, and many people would argue, back to your points about the origins of democracy, that federalism, U.S. federalism, finds its inspiration in this Haudenosaunee process. So it's got big scale implications for governance, but it's also got small scale implications for individual um, acts of violence, for individual transgressions and transgressors. If a person who was a member of the community committed a wrong, that wrong had to be redressed. Um, that violent wrench in the community had to be repaired. But the person who had committed that wrong was not dismissed out of hand as now worthless within the community. I take your point on generalizing, although I think we have to be careful not to go the other way and be... Be, be very sensitive to indigenous communities and then generalize about the Europeans. H having said that, um, let's get into the details of the book because this is this is not theory. This is actual history. It's it's built around a murder, a story of murder and indigenous justice in early America in 1722. <laughs> Tell me the story a little bit, uh, Nicole. Uh, very briefly, give, give us an overview of what happened, of what you write about. Yeah, so it, the book tells the story um, of a single year in which a pair of colonial fur traders from colonial Pennsylvania named John and Edmund Cartledge, two brothers, uh, violently assaulted a Seneca hunter named Sawantini um, and left him for dead in the Susquehanna Valley region of Pennsylvania in 1722. This was a moment in time 
when the Haudenosaunee really were a very significant power on the ground in North America, when the British Empire was still really in its early stages, and um, when British colonists were very concerned that a wanton act of violence such as that committed by the Cartlidge brothers could create a region-wide crisis. And in fact, many uh, wars between settler colonists and indigenous peoples did begin with a single instance of murder. So hoping to kind of um, fend off that possibility, the English colonists offered indigenous peoples what they described as, quote, the full measure of English justice. And what they meant by that was that they would arrest the suspects, hold them in jail for trial, um, and that if they were found guilty, they would be um, subjected to capital punishment, the full measure of English justice, just as if one colonist had killed another. Uh, and much to their surprise, and this is kind of the plot twist, indigenous groups said, no, thank you. Uh, starting with Sawantani's widow, Winnie P. Weda, who was a member of the Shawnee Nation, uh, which is an Algonquin group. She said that her husband's dying words were, my friends have killed me. And that was an incredibly significant symbolic statement that meant that this death was to be treated as an accident among friends, not an act of aggression by an enemy and that the process for redressing this wrong should be one of rebuilding community amongst friends and not retribution. Um, so that's the story that I tell in the book. Uh, and, and, and you suggest it results in one of the most of men, and this was a piece you actually had published in, in LitHub, um, one of the most important American documents you've never heard of. Tell us about this document, Nicole. Well, what happened is that the Pennsylvania government, you know, made its offer, which was firmly refused. And then there was a year of debate about which form of justice should prevail, what set of protocols was going to be followed. Um, and it was a year of many different treaty conferences in which there were lots of uh, notes taken about who said what. Um, and an indigenous diplomat stepped forward, a man named Takwatar Ansali, who went by the title Captain Civility. Um, and there you go, talk about inverting European expectations. Um, this man who was representing a polyglot community around Conestoga um, used the job title Captain Civility, which meant to bring people together in civil society. So Captain Civility um, really is a, a thought leader and we have great detail on the way that he tried to explain indigenous ideas to the colonists. This year of debate finally culminated in the signing of a treaty at Albany in September of 1722. And that's the document that I refer to as the most important document you've never heard of because that treaty is still in effect to this day it's the oldest continuously recognized treaty in Anglo-American law. And it does record the native perspective on justice in some detail. And it shows that the native side won, um, that native protocols were followed to the letter, that settler colonists gave emotional offerings in the form of condolences, engaged in ritual spiritual ceremonies of repair and paid significant reparations. Um, material compensation for the loss of Salantini. Did this great treaty of 1722, I understand its symbolic significance, 
Um, but as you say, it entered into general obscurity as, almost as soon as it was written. Um, it didn't help Native Americans, indigenous communities save themselves, did it, for the most part? That's almost the wrong question. Well, what's um, the right question? Look, when Europeans looked at treaties, they looked at kind of giving and getting. They thought of it as a negotiation. And their attitude was get as much for your side as you can and get it nailed down in writing so you can keep what you've got. And it's one and done. You know, once something's been exchanged, it never goes back. We got it. So Europeans preserved this treaty because in their minds, it cemented their land claims um, in what was then the colony of New York and, Pen and Pennsylvania and later became U.S. states. Native peoples approached the process of treaty councils from a completely different perspective. For them, it was always about nurturing relationships. And this was something that had to be done again and again over time. You don't you know, create a relationship on a single day and then call it done for perpetuity. Relationships are things that have to be cultivated, grown, shaped, that have to respond to environmental conditions. And so for the native peoples who signed this treaty, in the moment that they signed it, it was a good treaty. Um, they could not possibly have anticipated that colonists would have kind of said, okay, well, that's done. Uh, we don't have to keep engaging in an ongoing reciprocal relationship that will build community ties amongst our different peoples. And that's what Native people thought was happening. You quote Montesquieu, uh, you say, if we adopt Montesquieu's insight that laws offer a unique window into the spirit of a people, uh, we may realize how much we have left to learn from 18th century indigenous ideals of justice. What are those things that we need to learn, uh, Nicole? Well, I think there are, there's so much there. If I could just pick a couple quick points. One, indigenous peoples believed in the possibility of autonomy and unity. That, that an individual person or an individual group could maintain their own autonomy, their own language, their own traditions, their own ties, their own beliefs, and also engage in a true, um, a true relationship with other people. So it's not about assimilation or a conflict. It's about this, this ideal of unity and community and autonomy. And that's something that's pretty different, I think, from European ideas of either you're in this realm or you're not. Um, and it's something that really does undergird the idea of federalism, if you think about it, but that we seem to have a harder time with socially and culturally. And I think we could do a lot more with that. That's one piece. And then the other piece is criminal justice itself. The idea that a person who commits a transgression is not eliminated as an important member of the community in that moment. That person and that person's community has to do work to repair the damage that was done. But this is a community-wide process. It's not about individual guilt and punishment. It's about a rupture in the community and then a group effort to repair that rupture and kind of reconstitute the community. And the attitude is that a crisis like this is actually an opportunity to make these kinds of repairs and strengthen communities. 
you think that's practical in the America of 2022, a, a country increasingly racked by, I'm not sure if there's more crime, but certainly an obsession with crime and criminality. We just had a, a recall vote in San Francisco in which the, the San Francisco DA was recalled for his... Do you think that um, it's still relevant, these ideals? I think they're more relevant today than ever. I think if we look at the people who commit crimes and we look at their childhoods, they are almost always, always uh, the victims of severe traumas. And if we did nothing else in this country, if we invested in, you know, maternal child nutrition, you know, easy things that are politically popular, if we invested in childcare and early childhood education and social support for families, you know, we could, we could circumvent a lot of trauma and we could take a completely different view of the origins of crime. It's interesting that we had Donna Suskind on the show at the beginning of this week as a new book out, Family Nation. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that, but that certainly resonates. And what does this leave us in terms of making generalizations about Enlightenment philosophy, about the role of British thinkers, um, uh, a new brand of ethics, uh, which you which is called moral philosophy. You write about this, theorists like Adam Smith, John Locke. Does this example from Covered with Night, is it one reason why we should be rather critical, rather wary of the, the supposed moral philosophy that the British brought to North America and established the foundations of law in this country and indeed democracy? Look, I'm going to... Um refer here to uh, a theorist, Lisa Lowe. Um, and it's the problem of universalism with exceptions. Um, if we look at the ideals of European universalism, they are inspiring. And I do think they are something that we can continue to turn to. The problem is how self-interested those idealists were and all the ways that they tried to carve out exceptions uh, from who really was going to be included in the circle of humanity and all of the ways that they used race most of, most of all, but also gender and all sorts of forms of discrimination to carve out who exactly was going to be the enlightenment subject, um, who was going to have all of these human rights and whose humanity was somehow going to be disparaged. And so when we look at this idea of savagery and civility that the English borrowed from the Romans and then used to splash the native peoples of North America, we can see right there the workings of race in really the degradation of the idea of humanity. So I think that there are still things in the Enlightenment that people can turn back to, but it has to be a very kind of critical appreciation um, and not any sort of wholesale adaptation. Uh, final question, uh, Nicole, I know you've got to run. Um... You talk about savagery and civility. Um, that discourse, to use a popular historical word, seems to have survived and perhaps prospered in the America of the 2020s, certainly on, on the right. Do, do you see a, a direct connection between some of these so-called moral philosophical ideas that the colonialists brought over with them and certain popular or populist political ideas in America in 2022? I do. I do think there is a, an un, 
broken record of racial patriarchy in this country. And if anything, we're seeing a resurgence like I could not have imagined in my lifetime. Excellent. You did a great.